Hi, pod listeners. Stateside producer April Van Buren here. That's right. It requires not just one, but two Aprils to put together our daily podcast and radio show. And that is because there is so much work that goes on behind the scenes to create the stories and conversations that you hear every day. Our team has gotten pretty good at multitasking, like, for instance, producing a pizza podcast while also eating an obscene amount of pizza. But we couldn't do any of it without you. Listener support makes up more than half of Michigan Radio's yearly budget. That is a huge slice of the metaphorical pizza pie. If you value the work that Stateside does, whether it's helping you understand the big picture of the UAW strikes or bringing you stories of Motown's girl groups, please take a moment and pitch in to Michigan Radio's year-end fund drive. You can do so at michiganradio.org donate. And thanks. All right, back to the pod. You can't talk about Motown sound without giving respect to the girl groups of the 60s. The hits from Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and the Supremes, they have resonance even now. But we might not have hits like Can't Hurry Love without some of the earlier acts that ushered in that sound, the sound of the girl group. Ensembles of very young women, like the Chantelles and the Shirelles. There's a new book published this fall that's named after that last song called But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? An Oral History of the 60s Girl Groups. Today, we're talking to the authors, Emily Sear-Leibowitz and Laura Flam, about charming and sometimes heartbreaking stories behind these songs. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Laura Flam and Emily Sue Leibovitz, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. Did you two have, going into this project, girl group favorites that kind of that led you down this path? Absolutely. I mean, we, we really got into this project because we still go to, uh, to quote unquote oldie shows. And so some of the artists, some of the girl groups are still performing. So yes. there are some people that we were pretty used to seeing, you know, people like Mary Wilson. Lala Brooks from the Crystals, you know, the Shirelles are still out there. So Martha Reeves. So um, while I'm not sure what our favorites were going in, those were definitely some of the women that we saw perform in the last few years that kind of sparked this interest. Are, are you those ladies in the autograph line? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we have autographs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, getting into the life stories in the book. Um, I guess for me, it, it was such a uh, really uh, kind of a shock to realize once again that some of these groups, like the Bobettes, these were children when they when they started hitting. I mean, some of them were in elementary and junior high school going up to see Jerry Wexler and Ahmed Erdogan to try to get their record deal and like singing songs about one of their school teachers, Mr. Lee. Oh, he's a handsome, he's sweetie, that's 
it's crazy to remember that. It is absolutely wild. That's that is one of the things too that we really spent a lot of time thinking about once we started interviewing people was how young the especially when we think of what teenagers are now and you know what we think of teenagers and their lives that they navigate and what's appropriate for them to navigate. And these are young people going out and dealing with the record industry, touring, at times danger. And they were as young as, you know, 12 years old out on the road. It's wild. Right. And also the variation in the sounds of the girl groups is so is so interesting. I feel like a lot of us in our heads think, oh, girl groups, and they they go straight to the Supremes. Uh, or Martha Reeves. And and there really is a world of difference between, say, the Bobettes and the Chantels and the Supremes. How would you two describe the sonic range of, of the groups that you wanted to focus on for the project? Sure. Well, we this is Emily. Um, we define the girl group sound as beginning in the mid-50s, really born out of R&B and doo-wop. So that's what you really hear out of the early girl group sound with groups like the Bobettes and the Chantels. And I'm not a musicologist, but I'm sure if you were to speak to one, they would tell you there are certain doo-wop chord progressions, there are certain rhythms that were popular at the time. And then over the decade that our book really creates a genrefication of the girl group sound is um, 1955 to 1965. So when you get to something like the Supremes, even the Vandellas to a lesser extent, you're dealing with something, a sound that's already been adopted by the mass public, so a poppier sound in many ways. Now we don't hear that. We hear it as perhaps the Supremes are the definition of what the girl groups were as opposed to coming out of and owing influence to the girl groups before them. Even Mary Wilson said, you know, if it wasn't for the Shirelles, yeah. Uh, members of the Chantels that you spoke with for the book talked about the fact that even among, you know, in, in terms of like their grounding in black music, that they weren't really trained as gospel singers. They all, most or all of the members went to a Catholic church in school. And Sonia Goring Wilson shared that like, you know, they they were influenced by, by Gregorian chant. Were there any other variations in like some of these women's life experiences that you think had a had a defining difference in the sounds of groups that they were in? This is Emily again. I was just going to say, and I think Laura will speak more to this, is not just the Chantels had experience with Gregorian chant, but from our understanding, so many of the women, even as young girls, had musical education in schools and in their homes in a different way. So someone like Florence Ballard of the Supremes actually sang Ave Maria at her school talent show, which is when she met Mary Wilson. So these artists were actually influenced by a wide range of music that they were getting through a musical education that was both in the schools and then also in the streets with doo-wop music and being in these urban centers where different kinds of music were coming in and literally, literally you were walking through them and hearing them everywhere. So I think that's probably the main influences. But I was surprised to learn how well-funded a lot of music education was in school and how important that was throughout 
the different locations of the girl groups. Right. It's it's really a joy to sort of read these stories about growing up and, and coming of age and becoming a professional in Black New York, which it's it seems like the musical community was something of a small town. And the, the stories that, that some of these women shared about meeting up, trying to get a record deal together were just astonishing. Like the Chantelles going up to a record producer and singing their song, The Plea, which is just so dramatic. I mean, the scene, it, you can just imagine the guy being bowled over. Or the clickettes, like riding up and down in the elevator in this building where Ed Sullivan made his TV show, just kind of hoping they would run into a producer. I mean, wow, it, the music industry as, you know, this fishbowl, it hardly seems possible now. I know. It is wild how small it was. It was It was also, you know, I think one thing it really meant was that the system in place of the record industry in terms of it was such an insular group that it was really hard to break into the music industry beyond the Braille building, which is something that we talk to a lot about the Motown artists, because it seems like one of the reasons that, you know, there are there are really two hubs of the girl groups, New York and Detroit. And there are so many other girl groups out there, you know, all over the country that, you know, no one will ever hear about. We need to take a break. Back in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. There are lots of stories about record producers that I know people might recognize if they follow musical history much, but there, there were also less known figures. There was one black woman who owned a record label at the time who gave some of the early acts their start. Her name was Zelma Sanders. Can you tell us about her? Oh, sure. Um, Zell was a real front runner, a real vanguard in the industry. She started working with different groups in the 50s, but the groups that she usually worked with were very, very young. We're talking like 10, 10 years old. And she was quite a character and quite a force to be reckoned with. And, um, you know, she wasn't a perfect woman. She wasn't a hero. She wasn't a villain, but she was at the forefront of something. And she did something other women couldn't, didn't, weren't allowed to do. I'm going to let Laura share some more of the details about that. Yeah, she was definitely scrappy. You know, she had been a corrections officer before going into the music industry. And she would literally walk down the street and see young girls and say, sing for me, sing for me. And girls that had good voices, she'd say, oh, you want to join the group? And so there's this real fly by night way that she ran her whole business. Then she'd take them on tour. Uh, one of the groups, the hearts that she managed, they slept in a graveyard one night Ugh. because 
She didn't get them a hotel. The clickettes describe in our book stories of her cooking in the hotel room and sheeping out on getting them food and packing 15 people into a car and all, you know, so it was really, the industry was really the Wild West back then. And Zell Sanders really personifies that. But she also was a real trailblazer and a powerful woman. And if she had been alive at a different time, she may have achieved much more. Another thing that comes up again and again in the book is how fame really came at these these women fast. And they were so young. What were some of the consequences that you noticed from stories they told you about, you know, that pace of life and how they were how they were treated? I think that one way that some of the groups suffered was that all of the groups that came together, at least 99 percent of them were groups of friends that came together at a young age because they love to sing and they love to harmonize and they love the way that their voices played together. And a lot of stressors came about from fame and from getting ripped off and all of just all of the stresses that it throws at young people. And a lot of friendships were definitely fractured that should have gone on. But there's, you know, it, at this point, it's kind of a trope, the whole idea of, you know, you're really the star. Why don't, you know, forget about those girls. Why don't you step out? You're the one, you know, so there were so many outside forces coming at all of the girls that it was really, you know, to me, the stress on their friendships and how some of those friendships didn't last though many did, is, you know, one of the big outcomes that was so sad. Yeah. One of the things that I think all of us hope for with someone young seeing a lot of success is that they're able to parlay that into a stable future for themselves, which is rarely the case, right? With child stars of any kind, I don't think we as a society think they're going to have a really stable future. But, you know, some of the girl groups and even male groups at the time, and probably acts, you know, even before that, these children were so young that they weren't given a chance to learn the business side of things. Their creative acts weren't given the opportunity to see the light of day. Like speaking of Zelma Sanders, she often took songwriting credit for her musical act songs they wrote themselves. So literally like these children and their work is erased from history. And then in the realistic way, no one was trying to teach them what they didn't know about their own financial situation and what opportunities might be there. Right. So right. I think that they were able to be abused and victimized in like a bevy of ways. And even though it seems like it now that things were heartbreaking and difficult, I think the women that spoke to us proved that these songs and their life, their lives have grown into a place that honor the the children and the young girls they were that sang the songs to. Right. Uh, the other thing about the expectation that they, you know, they were expected to be flashy and lucrative when they were young. But then so many of them talked about the fact that they were, it was presumed they would just go home and get married and become mothers after having having had these incredible professional careers. That was another thing that that I hadn't thought much about either was just about where they, you know, how they refit themselves into their communities. Um, you know, some of them, it was it was more of a transition than others, right? Absolutely. It's, you know, we are talking about the late 50s and early 60s. And that was what was expected of young women and very much tied in with you know, what is a success as a, as a woman, maybe even more than going out and 
you know, selling lots of records and becoming famous. So, you know, we talk internally about how even just the fact that they were out there as young women publicly was groundbreaking in its own way. You know, they were women living their lives in public. I mean, girls living their lives in public. So in the end, yes, they got married and had kids for the most part and went on and had very normal lives. One of the experiences that surprised me in writing this book and working on this book was that I expected this to be the biggest thing that ever happened to any of these women in describing their lives. But really, it's a few years when they were young girls and, you know, 60, 65 years have gone by. The women of the groups that were able to speak to, like the clickettes, um, yeah, they all had these great full lives after. So the way the stories are told are in this kind of joyous perspective that you really get a sense of the youthfulness and also at the exact same time, how difficult it was and what was being asked of them. And I think when they presented it to us, it was all at once and together. And they really, they are all still friends and they have a really beautiful friendship. So I think that also comes through. Right. Did you run into situations much where women that you wanted to talk to are no longer with us? Yeah, absolutely. This is Emily. Um, You know, as we started the project, we already knew most of the women that were gone, we go to these shows, as Laura mentioned, these oldie shows, and we really do year by year hear about the losses in the community. So we were well aware. But, um, you know, one thing I don't think you can ever be emotionally prepared for is how many people we've lost while working on the project. And it really just made us feel more dedicated to it and feel its importance because we knew if these histories weren't recorded and if these stories weren't told, it might be the last chance for it to be a part of our history as a culture. Especially for some of the smaller groups like the Velvelettes who haven't, they haven't had a chance to write their own autobiographies and they don't appear in a lot of books. So speaking to some of those artists like the Clickettes, which is one of Zell Sanders groups, and they were out there at the way beginning, are a group that really is underrepresented in history. People are finding them now, but that was one of the honors is being able to capture their stories and allow them to tell their own stories. I wondered because the the structure of the book is so is so penetrating, you know, with all these voices telling their own stories. It's almost musical itself with the layered, you know, the people's layered experiences coming in and out of the same story. Anyone who's ever worked on an oral history knows that they are a lot of work. <laughs> And I just wondered if that was sort of the the point of this from day one, that you always knew you wanted to do the book, uh, you know, by giving their voices as much room as possible. Yeah, absolutely. The answer is yes. I think that, you know, the music is sang by primarily Black women, and we are not Black women. We're of um, different backgrounds. And we wanted to make sure that our project served the girl groups and served the women. And by working with their interviews and their own stories, it really also gave us an opportunity to learn even more and go deeper, which is, you know, a writer and researcher's dream. Um, And we love music and I have a poetry background. So the idea of trying to match the kind of magic and musicality that these women's voices created and that the songwriters wrote was a lofty goal, of course, but it was a lot of fun to try. We really wanted the women to tell their own stories and have their personalities come through because people remember things differently. 
so much time has gone by. Things were told, people were told different things at the time. So it really wasn't our place to decide what the truth was and tell some tell a story the way that we interpret it. We just wanted to open up a space for other people to tell their stories in their own voices and hopefully have their spirits come through. That's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes to listen to at michiganradio.org. Today's pod episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronya Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our intern is Livia Meradian. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and also from Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.